Welcome to Faith Restructured. I'm Cole. And I'm Mike. Here we cover topics on faith, deconstruction, and reconstruction. We discuss books that have helped us through the process, and we'll interview some friends and experts along the way. Let's jump into today's episode. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Faith Restructured. My name is Cole, and I am in a habitable space. My friend Mike over here is in a fallout shelter uh, with <laughs> like 30 cans of beans behind his head. Uh, not really sure what's going on there, but that's we what we do. That- I had to do anything to get this episode recorded. So I'm just, <laughs> you know, here I you am. Know- I'm in this fallout chapter now. Uh, I hope we hope you really enjoyed the uh, rereading scripture uh, episodes that we did. Pretty cool. Think that they were were helpful for for us to kind of share a few ways that you can read scripture on the other side of these things. But uh, hey, we're back with a familiar one, and that is the wisdom pattern by Richard Rohr, and we are on chapters uh, eight and eight nine. And nine, eight and Ooh. nine. So. Uh, with that being said, we're going to jump right into it. Chapter eight, the great chain of being. My freshman year of college, uh, I went to a liberal arts college and had to take a gen ed for Western civilization. You could choose ancient or modern, and I choose, mm-hmm. choose, chose wow. ancient. And, um, and yeah, that's the end coffee. of our career. I'm sorry. Wow, wow. And uh, it was all about like Plato and Socrates and but it was also about um, Socrates teacher Pythagoras. All of this to say I had to read this book called The Golden Chain, which reminds me of this chapter because it's a very similar concept of the great chain of being. They're drawing upon this idea. All I'm saying is if you're a fan of Harry Potter, Harry Potter six, the whole plot is that. Harry's in a potions class that he basically would fail, except he got a really used crappy version of the book, but it had all these special notes on the sides that actually helped him pass the class in like top of his class. I ordered this book, the great chain of being, I understood none of it, but it was used and all the important quotes from the book were already highlighted. And I literally was just like, I'm going to see if these are the right answers for these essay questions. (laughs) And I got an A plus in that class. So Thank you for whoever did Mike's homework. Seriously, this is why we should go old school and everyone sign their name in a book before they get rid of it, like the old library cards. Mm. But then we can trace the history. But the great chain of being, it's this notion that... um, By the way, that's probably my... I've never seen the Harry Potter book or (laughs) movies or read the books. Man, this is a bad day for us. Uh, But we're going through them, my wife and I, now. And so far, the Half Blood Prince is my uh, favorite episode, or whatever. Yeah, Cole sounds like Movie. he's trying to like hang I out can... and be relatable to teenagers right now. Oh yeah, that's my favorite episode of Harry Potter, the Half Blood <laughs> Prince. Did have a lot of blood drawn from me today, so if I'm sounding a pint low, that's why. <clears throat> so the great chain of being, uh, if you can picture like on a piece of paper, someone draws a diagram and the world is on the bottom uh, two thirds, mm-hmm. but then there's like a dotted line across the top. Uh, and then somewhere above the top is where like the divine resides. So in like a platonic view of that, the ideas of the forms, right? So um, mm-hmm. 
down on earth on the bottom two thirds of the page there's that's where all of us live and we have the idea of goodness lowercase g like oh you did a good job on your homework today you did a really good thing holding the door open etc cetera, etc cetera. but up above that dotted line where the divine is is a capital g good it's where mm. like all of our ideas about goodness come from so like when we say it's a good thing to pay your taxes on time it, that's not the same thing as saying it's a good thing to like put others needs before your own, but we're drawing upon the same concept in some sense. And the great chain of being is the idea that like, we are totally separated from the divine divine forms, et cetera, et cetera. But there's this chain that you can imagine that drops down from the heavenly realm that connects us in some way to that. And we get a glimpse of what goodness is. We can't get our, heads around it or grasp it in our hands, but we've got a glimpse of it. And that's how we're using this idea of goodness without being able to fully describe what we mean when we say something is good. Um, so that is kind of the philosophical tradition of uh, the golden chain or the great chain of being. And in this chapter, Roar is drawing upon that to point us back to some ancient tradition of how people have thought about God and our relationship with God. And I think one of the other pieces that Roar is trying to make known is the interconnectedness of everything based off of that, like you said, that philosophy. So rather than fragmenting things like we do or saying that there is always a very clear linear hierarchy to things, that if we <clears throat> look at this thing from a different perspective, we can see the divine in and through all of creation, humanity, and um, it the lines rather than being very rigid between those those different layers or levels and uh, whatnot. The great chain of being almost casts like a gradient filter on it, so that as you are moving through all of those things, you can still catch glimpses of the divine. <clears throat> yeah, I like that. Um, I, I think even related to that. Uh, is uh, this quote that Rohr is drawing upon from um, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theologica. And he quotes, uh, in, the world, in the soul's journey to God, we must present ourselves to the whole material world as the first mirror through which we may pass over to the Supreme. Um, so what he's pointing at is this idea that like um, everything in creation has the potential to point us towards God if we have the eyes to see that because mm -hmm. the great chain of being um, God wasn't, I think this is something, especially in the modern day that we lose sometimes. And then there's like, you know, some dorky, well, that's a little rude, but I'll say it anyway, some dorky like ideologies that try to draw upon this, but ancient cultures thought everything mattered, like everything in creation mattered. And then we got to a point where everything was just a means to an end. Like we didn't care about what materials we used for X, Y, and Z, so long as we got what we want. And now, mm -hmm. you know, astrology has made a comeback for whatever reason. And, you know, uh, <coughs> that's a thing. But this idea that like, sometimes in our theology, we think like the world is useless. The only important thing in the world is humans and everything else pointless deer only there for deer jerky you know like <laughs> but the reality is that like god created all things and called them good and our theology revolving around creation is really important um certainly we can understand where humans lie in relation to the rest of creation but 
when you start to think, hmm, maybe all of the other things God created are also important and good, then they perhaps can point us towards God or point us towards a, a more holistic way of living than before. And that's one of the things lost in the, in the modern day, I think, is when we, we substitute that or, or shift our gaze and think that things aren't that important. Um, it's just about us, just about, any, you know, preserving the human race at all costs, everything else can fall to the wayside. We're actually losing part of uh, the commission to tend to creation um, and, and take care of it. But we're also losing our ability to connect with God on a certain level because we're not allowing ourselves to see him in that um, fullness, I guess. And one of the other quotes he uses from uh, Eckhart is uh, if humankind could have known God without the world, God wouldn't have, would have never created the world. I think that's a little bit hyperbolic on purpose, but um, the, the idea is that everything is interconnected and everything is, um, <clears throat> is important for understanding the divine in scripture. We have it. We even see this, uh, that, that the there is not really a hierarchy there's no lesserness to creation paul writes that all of creation has been subjected to the curse of humankind right we have this idea that that there's the shared wound that <clears throat> that all of humankind shares in and until we can get that correct until we can get that righted um creation is groaning for the time when we kind of get on board with everything. So actually in that instance, if there was a hierarchy, it would be that creation is on a different level than we are. And so for us to use that language of, Oh, uh, we can just throw things away or, or things aren't as important as humans just doesn't really help later on. <clears throat> he goes on to say that we have been unwilling to see the divine image in those we judge to be inferior or unworthy. So he hearkens that to sinners, heretics, animals, things growing from the earth and earth itself. Once the great chain of being is broken, we were soon unable to see the divine image in our own species, except for the folks that are just like us. And so this is the philosophical, or I guess maybe even the theological uh, insights that Roar brings to some of the things we've been talking about a little more frankly. Uh, we see division between right and left, conservative, liberal, all of those sorts of things. When we've stopped, when <clears throat> we've broken this chain of being, or we've broken this idea that, that the divine resides here and now and in and through all things, rather like Mike talked about, we see it as a, the divine lives out there and we either commission the divine into, into our lives by prayer or, or the divine steps in, or we're looking one day to go to the divine, right? <clears throat> Um, when we view things from that dualistic perspective, we then tend to view everything from that perspective. And so there's, there are good, there is, there is a better species, there is a worse species, there is, um, <clears throat> as he says, there's sinners, and there's clean people or, or saved people, as if you want to call it that there's heretics, and there's people who get it right all of the time. And guess what the heretics are the people that don't are that aren't us because we get it right all the time, right? Those right, are the ideas. Right. Those are the ideas that Roar is trying to put a little theological language behind in this chapter. Yeah, that's something, uh, you know, and I think we've mentioned this plenty, but one more time, you know, when people view others as heretics, right? A heretic, heresy, like wrong belief, right? And you go, oh, they're just wrong. But if you ask that person, do you think you have everything figured out right? 
you'd go, oh, no, I'm not perfect. I've probably got some things wrong. It's like, okay, so you assume you've got most things right and a few things wrong, but you're not a heretic because you didn't mean to get it wrong. So the, mm. the subtext of that <laughs> is that you assume the other people are either completely wrong about everything or that they're planning to get it wrong. And that's what makes them a heretic. And it's like, wait a minute, like <laughs> we have such a high view of self and we pretend that we don't, and we need to be able to, to come back with some humility. Mm. Uh, building off of what Cole's talking about, the breaking of the chain of being, um, Roar goes on and just talks about how like this is what makes us lose our ability to see God working in all things. Now, again, that language might be um, testy for some, like the idea that God is working through all things, whether it's creation or you know systems of people working or anything to that ex extent. But um, it's actually like a theological thing drawn from Colossians 1, which is really significant for the theology of eschatology, um, of all things kind of coming together. And it's the language that like when Paul's writing, he says, Christ, who holds all things in unity with himself, is drawing all things to God. That's in Colossians 1. You can check that out if you want to. But the language of the great chain of being being broken uh, Roar points to the fact that this happens just before the Enlightenment um, and modern secularism. And as a result, like our shift in gaze that we no longer th think that there's a spiritual value to the things around us, right? Things are just tools. It's just material for us to use. You know, you start to use that language, it starts to make us sound like God, right? Everything's mm -hmm. just a tool for mm -hmm. us to use to, to come up with some greater purpose. And it's like, wait a minute, like God has already made these things good. And the point that he gets to, this is over on 150, he says, you know, we, we lose our ability to see, um, we lose the basis for seeing God in anything. Um, and yeah. so he, he makes this statement that I think is really, really helpful the way that we think about this. He says, God is within all things, but not enclosed, outside all things, but not excluded, above all things, but not aloof, and below all things, but not debased. Now, personally, like I'm a huge fan of the prayer of St. Patrick, Christ in me, Christ before me, Christ yeah. uh, above me, Christ below me, beside me, Christ in every eye that sees me, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. It's a really powerful prayer for a number of reasons. And this kind of builds on that kind of language um, in a helpful way that helps us realize like God is beyond our niche of, of understanding the world. You know, yeah. I'm 27. Hopefully God is bigger than my mind at 27 can conceive of. I'm mm -hmm. very glad that God is bigger than the mind that the world I conceived of at 17, 10 years ago, when I thought I had it all figured out. Um, there's all kinds of things wrapped up in that. Um, and, and that quote that he is drawing upon God being within all things, but not enclosed outside, but not excluded. That's from Bonaventure. And he says, he goes on to explain that the origin, magnitude, multitude, beauty, fullness, activity, and order of all created things are the very footprints and fingerprints of God. That is a quite lovely and very safe universe in which to live. Welcome home. And so when we are able to kind of expand our understanding of how God is working around us, it, it shifts our ability to see how God might be using very ordinary things in extraordinary ways every day. And often we, we see that in hindsight, right? We can go, oh, I remember that one person I encountered, you know, eight years ago, and it was such a normal thing, but clearly God was working. 
But in our day-to-day lives, we don't value those ordinary things um, in the same way. We just go, oh, no, it's ordinary. And, and we move on. And I think we lose so much as a result of that. And we, uh, we invalidate the experiences of God that others have because they don't look the way we want them to look. They're not as tameable um, as we might hope. Hmm. Yeah. And um, I think what you then see kind of come out of that is the is the sticky kind of the the dark side of of what christianity can become and faith can become if we're not careful he says on 151 the world uh the whole world has risen against us our seeing has been very partial usually prejudicial and often not seeing at all. The individual has always decided and discriminated as to where and if God's image would be honored, as if we like, as if we have the ability to do that. He says, sinners, heretics, witches, Muslims, Jews, Indians, uh, native spiritualities, buffalo, elephants, land and water, they're all the loser then if we start to view life this way. Yet we dared to call ourselves monotheists. One God tends to move a one God who tends to move a people towards one world or Christ-like. So basically, basically what Roar is getting at is if we view the world that way, if we view that there, or if we break this chain of being and we can, we can no longer see Christ in and through everything around us. And we're not actively becoming these people who avoid the dualisms of right or wrong, yes or no, uh, Jews or Muslims, wrong, Christians, right, uh, elephants, just ivory versus elephants, the beauty of God, right? If we start to do these things, then why do we dare call ourselves people of, of faith or people who follow a, a monotheistic God or one God who would be calling us to, to a place of wholeness and whole humanity? I, this has been like really heavy on my heart recently because um, <clears throat> I just think we've got it wrong. And I, I don't, I mean, I, and I recognize my part in that, that I play, like I get it wrong too. <laughs> I'm not saying, I'm not saying that it's, it's everybody else's problem. It's mine too. But like, do we know what the end game here is? Like, what is the end game of scripture? The end game of scripture is depending on how you, how you read uh, some, some of the words of Paul and Jesus, like the end goal is every knee bows, every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we live in unity with one another and with God for eternity. Like that's the language. Sure. There's, there's the in the out, the sinner, the redeemed, that sort of stuff that, that kind of casts some shadows on that or gives us some, you know, should cause us to, to, to have some questions about that, but like, what's the goal here that that's the goal. And if we look at culture, we look at the world right now, uh, we look at specifically Christians and, and people of faith and their actions right now, are we doing that? <laughs> right. I don't know that we are. And um, I really think we have fragmented this this chain of being so much so that while I have hope that we can get back to that place, I, I don't see it right now. And I don't see a a clear path forward. Um, 
yeah. And I don't know. I think that's part of the reason why specifically I'm doing this, this podcast is just to like, maybe find those people <laughs> yeah, or to connect well, with others in, in a way that isn't, is outside of that, that realm. I don't know. Because yeah, being aware or feeling like we're, we're not seeing that as a possibility right now and yet having hope. Hope is fundamentally an act of faith. Even you, you don't think about it. You don't like, I mean, hope is a verb. Like, I hope this will happen, but having hope, like using it as like a noun or a nominative form is different when you think about it, because hope is essentially the opposite of cynicism. Cynicism is deciding worst case scenario from the beginning, ultimately to protect yourself from the hurt right. of it not coming to fruition. Hope mm -hmm. is opening yourself up to the possibility of being hurt because you have faith that something might happen. And that's why like faith, hope, love, greatest of these things are love. Um, but think about it. Like when we choose to have hope or when we say we have hope, we are vulnerable to the thing, to the idea that the thing might not happen. But like you said, like, I think that's what, you know, our goal is here is um, collectively as the two of us, but beyond that, taking it to all of you to sharing that hope of showing a different way, not, something new either like that's always important like there's language of like a new kind of christian that was a book that got big in the mid 2000s or i guess 2010s mm -hmm. um we're not trying to do a new thing we're actually trying to point back to things that people have been talking about for thousands of years um and we're not the only people doing it we're not the experts we're trying to point you in the direction of those kinds of people um and so yeah i mean this is just a project of hope to see how do we do this better because we can get it right for like three hours and then get it wrong for the next 17 days, right? We need to wake up every morning with the reality that, or with the um, <clears throat> consciousness about our own capacity to miss this or to muddy this vision or to be a part of the problem. Like sometimes we think we got it right once and we're just magically going to always get it right. It's like, no, that's not how this works. Um, this is bottom yeah. of 151 kind of wrapping up the chapter is only a page or two left. But he says, you know, the problem is we always think the problem is elsewhere, whereas the gospel keeps the pressure of conversion on us. Mm. He says, like, we always think about like those people out there. And yeah, we've got some things to work on on ourselves. But really, the big problem is those other people. But the gospel is always pressuring conversion on us. And again, like a Protestant mindset in particular um, is that conversion is a one time event. That happens like when you decide to follow Jesus, you've converted from atheistic to theistic. And it's like, no, yeah. like we are being transformed and converted every day, converted from old <clears throat> ideologies that don't work anymore, old habits, con converted from our own self-centeredness. So he goes on, he says, as far as the soul is concerned, no one else is our problem. We are our problem. Um, he quotes uh, this from Deuteronomy, you be converted and live. That's the biblical tradition from Deuteronomy 30, um, 15 and on he's quoting. But, um, you know, I, it's kind of just reorienting our focus. I was talking to, my, to a good friend the other day about uh, working in youth and children ministry and how sometimes the subconscious idea is like without us doing our jobs, people won't have a relationship with God. And it's like, yeah. no. Like, it's not my responsibility to make you love God and follow God and 
draw close mm-hmm. in prayer. I, I am here to guide, to lead, to help show what it looks like, to help answer questions. And not that I am like an encyclopedia of answers, but sometimes the pressure that we put on ourselves, sometimes for the right reasons, but often for the wrong reasons is without me, your soul won't be converted. It's like, no, 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 yeah. we're not in the converting business. Like <laughs> the, the parables that Jesus and Paul, you know, <clears throat> Jesus uses and Paul builds upon, like there's a seed planted. And some people plant seeds, some people water seeds, but it's God who gives the growth. And it's uh, asinine for us to think that it's that it's us doing the work. And without Mike Kramer showing up tomorrow, then no one's going to hear. It's like, no, like God is working with or without us and our involvement. And when we re reshift our perspective on how we engage in God's work, it enables us to, to engage in it in a, a whole fuller way. Yeah, I don't think that denies like we're what we're saying here or what we're not saying here. I think we can make a little bit more clear is that there aren't things that are like anti that, right? That, that there aren't things in the world that that don't look like Christ. And Scripture has a term for this that we've turned into a person that we're going to see one day at the rapture or after the rapture, whatever antichrist, but. There are concepts and there are systems and there are power structures that are anti-Christ and we can call those things out and call for something better. Yes. uh, With hopeful uh, eyes looking forward to the future and rather than condemning, eh, not going to say that, cut that. And rather than, uh, necessarily moving all of our chips into a different place, which sometimes needs to happen. Yeah. Systemic racism, not cool. Uh, Something that needs to be denounced and and moved on from, but uh, there are smaller instances where if we would tweak stuff and we would change stuff, we could see radical change happen. And uh, we can see that as less anti-christ then and more christ-like in its in its vision for the for the future and so um i think roar is really just getting at the what what roar is really getting at is the idea that it's not our like we we have ascribed ourselves as the moral judge of the universe like it's good or it's bad and we're the people who make that that distinction and he says you know once we stop seeing we stop seeing Um, and it's like, uh, yeah, that's very simple, but you're also really right. I mean, think about, you know, the Egyptians at the time of enslavement of the Hebrews, like Pharaoh stopped seeing, and then Pharaoh, like God hardened Pharaoh's heart is the language that's been used. And so at the point where we stop that process of seeing, um, Sometimes it's irreversible or it takes a lot to reverse it. And so like nothing else, spiritual transformation, Roar says, is an all or nothing proposition. Like Jesus's robe, it is a seamless garment. He wore it and offers it to us. For those, give, for those given sight by the gospel, there is only one world. It's God's world. And it is all supernatural. And then he goes on to say, um, in, in, the, in the one world liberated by Christ, our need to divide and discriminate has been denied us. And he says, and frankly, we don't like it for some reason. We want to retain that right um, where to decide where God is, whom we must honor and whom we may hate. 
He says it's a rather clever guise for we can remain autonomous and we can even remain violent while thinking of ourselves as holy. But Jesus reminds us that any branch cut off from the vine is useless. We go, we either go to God linked or it seems we don't go at all. And so, um, I think that's just a really healthy reminder, Mike, I don't know if you have anything else from this chapter, but, but I think it's a really healthy reminder to us that we can play God or we can play a role in God's kingdom. And, uh, roar encourages us to the to the latter and i know i have to encourage myself often to the latter as well um but the daily practice like you were saying mike of of kind of reminding ourselves of our, our place in the universe and then also the beauty and uh and the inhabitation inhabitation i guess yeah of of the divine all around us um can really help help us situate ourselves properly in this in this kingdom yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, I think you said it well. We like to think of it as, you know, how are how am I personally going to get all this done? How am I going to get closer to God? And we are never typically thinking in the communal aspect. We're pointing to the people out there that hopefully they start doing what I do, but I'm going to mm. do it the right way. And it's like, yeah, we need to shift our, our mindset. Even Paul's language Christ language it was never about individuals it was about communal ways of being mm -hmm. um and that's how we'll get back to a more holistic view of creation but um and i would say like that takes all of us yeah right um i mean i know you just <laughs> you kind of just said that too but so if you're discouraged because you feel like you're doing that um rest in the fact that you're doing it and then also encourage others to do that. And sometimes that does look like a hard confrontational conversation you have to have, but sometimes it means that we also have to shift the way that we talk to people. Mm. Um, because there's a lot of people who aren't there, but, there's, but that transcends any side, any political structure, any place in the world, any you know, social, ge socio-political, geographical setting. Like part of it is that we need to do the transformational work in our hearts so that we can help others do the transformational work in theirs. I think we've been talking about that a lot. Yeah. Uh, and that's a perfect segue. Uh, I mean, what transformation requires. Chapter nine is about the power of forgiveness. And I'll just read this first section really, because it's a great kickoff he yeah. says among the most powerful of human experiences is to give or to receive forgiveness i'm told that two-thirds of jesus's teachings are directly or indirectly about the mystery of forgiveness that is god's breaking of god's own rules never thought mm -hmm. of forgiveness being described that way he says that's not surprising because forgiveness is probably the only human action that reveals three goodnesses simultaneously because when we forgive, we choose the goodness of the other over their faults. We experience God's goodness flowing through ourselves, and we experience our own goodness in a way that surprises us. That's an awesome, awesome coming together of power, both human and divine. And this, this language of forgiveness um, kind of allowing us to see past the other person's faults. It's, it's easy when it's someone that we... Mm. no easy is obviously uh, a misleading word probably never easy to forgive in some sense but um it's easier 
an easier task to forgive when uh, you are familiar with someone's goodness, right? And they, they just messed up this time. It's a close friend or a spouse or whoever, and you have a good relationship and they just did something bad, but you're going to remember all the good things. It's different when it's absolute strangers that do something. And now your only interaction with that human is to our, uh, define their entire being by the negative thing that they've done to you. Uh, I was thinking about this driving the other day and how driving just reveals some of the worst parts of human culture, like hum humanity, because like the amount of people that stop all of traffic because it's convenient for them, like, oh, they're in the wrong lane. So now they're going to block 30 cars and because they don't want to be late. So they're going to cut off these lanes trying to make an illegal U-turn. And now you're making 30 cars plus late because mm. of you, because you're so focused on you or like just the aggression. You go, man, that person. And you just define them by that moment or mm. even more severe than that. But in reality, forgiveness is about overlooking, not overlooking. That sounds like you're pretending it's not there, but choosing to look past faults to see someone's goodness. I think we've quoted Brian Stevenson uh, here before, uh, I think on the Shane Claiborne interview, that we're all better than our worst day. We're all more than our worst moment. And mm -hmm. forgiveness is even more significant, I think, when you're choosing to affirm someone's goodness without knowing it. Um, mm -hmm. And we see that most potently in the scene on the cross where Jesus cries out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They definitely knew what they were doing. They just didn't know the severity and Jesus is still yeah. advocating for forgiveness of the people that deserve at least rather than the condemnation, um, which is kind of this language of God breaking God's own rules. But um, yeah, just understanding that forgiveness is the backbone of our faith. And it is maddeningly difficult, but it's also really easy. And there's so much tied up in it. I, I, I don't know the specific pages because I don't have the book open right now, but I know he talks about the ego and how the little ego, uh, as he kind of dog or pet names it, um, becomes a big issue when you come to this. And yeah, I, I think we don't take that, that practice seriously enough forgiveness because there is a lot of, there's a lot of hurt that goes around the world and there's a lot of hurt that, that happens to us. And in scripture, we're just constantly reminded of what forgiveness looks like. I mean, that's basically a third of the old Testament too, is like the Israelites cry out to God and are like, we're so sorry. We started like, you know, worshiping other gods and God's like, no worries. I got you. I'll get you out of this one. And then he sets them straight and uh, all is good for like, you know, another 12 to 40 years, you know, whatever perfect number they want to use for that moment. <laughs> and then they fall again and they're like, we're sorry. We totally like reached out to other gods. And he's like, no worries. I got you again. And it's this idea of one of the cool things in the old Testament is, is God remembers uh, his people. And I think that language is so helpful because in those moments, it's easy for us where we've been hurt to, to not forget people, 
but to push people away and keep them at arm's length. And now like, because we know this one hurt and we define people by this hurt that they caused us, we forget all of the good that comes from those people. And it takes forgiveness really is us remembering those people for more than that moment. And, uh, like you said, with, uh, like you said, with Jesus on the cross, um, that's a moment where, yeah, you're right. <laughs> they knew exactly what they were doing. There's no other reason you hang somebody on a cross, but, um, you know, Jesus chooses in that moment to remember the other parts of people and value that more than the hurt that was caused to him in that moment. <clears throat> yeah. I love this on uh, 162. He says, if we don't get forgiveness, we're missing the whole mystery. We're still living in a world of meritocracy, of quid pro quo thinking, of performance and behavior that earns an award. But forgiveness is the great thawing of all logic, reason, and worthiness. It's a melting into the mystery of God as unlearned love, unmerited grace, the humility and powerlessness of a divine lover. Forgiveness is the beginning, the middle, and the end of the whole gospel, as far as I can see. That's being... That's war speaking. I think that's a really good point. I mean, sometimes like when you are coming to terms with your own darkness, or your, your own dark side or mm. capacity for evil, and, and you've acknowledged it and, and you go to the person or people or community that you just need to confess what is wrong. And again, it can be an individual in a friend or uh you know, teacher, spouse, et cetera, or it can be a group or a church or a community. And, and when you name it and they choose to forgive you, we can't, we can't wrap our minds around it. Like when we know how undeserving we are because of how terrible we've been. And yet in this language, forgiveness is the thawing of logic and reason and worthiness. Like we, we just can't wrap our minds around it. Like when you, when you truly own how much you can do wrong, it's hard to move beyond it. Um, and that's some of the language that's used around like our, our own relationship with God when we recognize sin and how sinful we are and God's grace is so great and all these things. But again, like when we shift our mindset, like often we are, are again, pointing outwards to all the people that deserve, they need to ask for our forgiveness. Right. And like, and we'll be so great and maybe I'll forgive them. And then often in our language, in our culture, we say, no, this person's beyond forgiveness. You've done too much. I can't give it to you. And yet true forgiveness, Christian forgiveness, Christian love is the thawing of all logic and reason and unworthiness or worthiness rather. It's unlearned love. It's un, unearned rather an unmerited grace. And we don't know how that works in our society, especially like everything is about performance, about status, about climbing your way to the top. As much as Protestants love to quote uh, what James like, or, or struggle with James, I should say like faith and works like, yeah, mm -hmm. we don't need works to be saved. Like, and they kind of, you know, screw up. Catholic theology in that sense, like those Catholics believe you need to work to be saved, but we don't believe that. And yet we live our entire lives around this mentality. Like I need to do all the right things or I'm going to be at the bottom of the line. And, you know, it's like, no, like this is unlearned love, unearned, man. I keep saying unlearned what's wrong with you. 
apparently I've unlearned that word, mm-hmm. unearned love and unmerited grace, because mm-hmm. forgiveness is ultimately, <clears throat> and it, it's also an action of faith and saying that I like, I, I'm not going to cling to this thing that has hurt or angered me, but rather I'm going to cling to God. And I'm going to trust that you being made in the image of God will be redeemable, regardless of if I see that redemption in you or not, because that's not what it's about. It's not about us getting vengeance or getting you to acknowledge how bad you are. Like choosing to forgive someone can happen without that person being in the room or being aware of your forgiving them. But often we walk around clinging to these hurts and these angers because they're real and we don't see how much they're actually damaging us in the process. Um, yeah. I just love that language of thawing logic. Back on 151, which is actually in the last chapter, um, Roar makes a, a pretty cool distinction about who Jesus is in all of that great chain of being. And uh, I think it's also helpful for how we then frame what it looks like to forgive. And he says that, uh, we were to keep the we were to keep the chain unbroken by not hating eliminating or expelling the other he commanded us to love the enemy and gave us himself as cosmic victim so that we would get the point and stop creating victims but we are transformed into christ very slowly and so um this this work is just really hard but it's what we're called to. We're called to be people who are beyond that. You know, chapter one or two of this book is called Beyond Victimhood. And I think this is what it's about. Like when we're wronged, like our job and the, on the other side of that is not, <clears throat> is not to defi- let those things define people. And it's to move forward and sure there's hurts and sure there's boundaries and sure there's safety. Yeah. We're not saying any of that, but the, the real, the real, um, the real inner work that needs to happen is these, is this stuff. And it's also the work of communities. It's also the work of governments. Like I love how Shane Claiborne says like the best way we've found to handle the people who, do the worst things in our society is to do the absolute worst thing we could to them and kill them. Right. Um, and I just think that we, we as a society are more into uh, retributive justice, which is returning to the other people, what they've, they've done to us. And what Christ calls us to is restorative justice. Like the death of Christ is not the end of the story through that there is restored um, <clears throat> humanity's restored and able to participate in this thing that's much bigger. But the thing that we're called to participate in is the life that Je- and teachings of Jesus Christ. And so that that's the stuff that starts to, to take over and the stuff that we start to, to work on. Eugene Peterson, he's uh, an old um, uh, pastor, writer, thinker, person, author. Um, and he wrote the paraphrased version of the message or the translation, the message, whatever you want to call it. And he says, uh, John, the gospel of John starts off the word became flesh and dwelt among us and all that stuff. And, and the way that, um, 
Eugene Peterson writes that he writes the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. And I think that language is just really helpful when you start to really personify that because when you move into a neighborhood, you live amongst people and you actually have a role in, in the people around you. And so that means that each of those people then have the ability to be transformed by who Christ is. And uh, so maybe the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood and it's time for us to invite that neighbor over for dinner. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, yeah, I think when I first encountered the message paraphrase of the scripture or the Bible, rather, um, I was so against it for so many reasons. And I was in a, like a King James only church. And so it was just like the worst possible thing. I'm like, how did you even get there? But when you learn about like the art of translation, it's more an art than a science in many ways. It's both, but it's more art than science. I think um, you realize <laughs> there aren't one-to-one translations of words or ideas in particular and so trying to capture the idea that is being communicated like this is something lost entirely in english with the hebrew bible like different kinds of poetic writings in the psalms especially like how in hebrew each line will start with a different letter of the alphabet sequentially and so the entire psalm is written very carefully to kind of capture the entire alphabet in this holistic way. And in English, we're just writing stuff. You know, we lose the rhyme. We lose like the, the poetry of what's happening to shift how we in, encounter it. Um, Cause it's difficult to do that well. Um, and what Eugene Peterson did in the message with a passage like that is change how we think about it. Think about someone talking to you about like how, what your life looks like, but they don't live your life. Right. They're telling you, oh, you should just like, you know, cut your lawn every three days, but they don't know how much it rains there or how much it doesn't rain there. And But when someone lives in your neighborhood with you, there's a closeness, there's a, a familiarity with what your lifestyle is really like. And when we say the word became flesh, the logos became flesh. Like when we say the, like, the word was with God and the word was God, sometimes we think the Bible and it's like, no, no, no. Like we're calling Jesus the word. The word of God was mm. Jesus, not the Bible in that sense. And when we say the word became flesh, God became flesh and dwelt among us, it means that God was taking on all of the things that we take on. And that is the, the power. And that's the language of moving into the neighborhood. It shifts our creative imaginations um, or imaginative worldview to be able to process the information in a different way. Um, there's this... Uh, kind of whole section and it's building off what you already said about um, the ego, the small ego in particular, but Roar's talking about how Satan uh, in second Corinthians 11, Paul says, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And he says the best and most convincing disguise for fear is virtue itself. Um, then it never looks like uh, fear. And he goes on, he says, for fear to survive, it must look like reason and prudence and common sense and intelligence, the need for social order, morality, religion, obedience, justice, sometimes even spirituality. And it always works because what, way, what better way to veil vengeance than to call it justice? Mm. And he kind of builds out this idea. I'm not going to read the next two and a half pages, but 
just talking about like one of the issues is that we think Jesus, we talk about Jesus in hindsight is all about love. But the first thing that Jesus did was eradicate the idea of hate. And it was Mm -hmm. when hate was removed that we could talk about love freely, but it first required Jesus to expose and destroy the phenomenon of hate that's on 163. And then here on 165, he says, we still love to hate. And he gives this whole list of people, but we basically rebranded the way Mm -hmm. that we justify our hate for these people groups, whether it's, you know, women hating men or liberals hating conservatives or activists hating rich people, good family values, hating uh, LGBTQ people and victims can hate perpetrators. And he just keeps going on and on with these uh, different uh, people groups and saying that we've come up with a way to make our hate legitimate and necessary mm. and deserved. Um, and Roar thinks that's a problem because ultimately when we try to, to define our love by what we hate, it, it ultimately mm. poisons us from the inside out, which I think is an interesting um, approach. Cause it seems to me like throughout scripture that there are things God hates or things that God is resistant to, and yet the, the list of things are often, the, those are the kinds of people Jesus was with, the people that the Pharisees said, no, like these are the people that God said he hates in this passage or that passage, or it's unclean. And yet that's where Jesus found himself. And mm-hmm. often we find ourselves taking on the role of the Pharisees or the Sadducees, right? And saying, mm-hmm. oh, these are the people in my life that don't do the things that God wants them to do. Therefore, that justifies my hate for them. It's like, Hmm, I don't know. So I'm like, I, I see what mm. we're saying. It makes me uncomfortable, but I think that's <laughs> also the point. Right. So, it's- well, yeah. And I, th- I think what, what he's getting at in that section, I mean, this is just my own personal opinion, not Mike's, but I think what he's saying is rather than focus on the truth and beauty of those things, he's saying what we've done is we've created ever higher forms of sophistication and even more subtle forms of disguise for what hate looks like in those situations. So I think again, speaking only for me, I can, I can see the difference between when I am trying to live in the, live in the transformed life that is offered by some of those things Uh, that he kind of mentions. And I can also see the times when I live in the hate for those who don't see the transformation that can happen in those areas. And I think that's the very hard distinction that Rora is trying to make. And if you're reading it very quickly, uh, you can, you can also kind of think like, Whoa, what, or get away from that. <laughs> right. Like you're, you're right. being, you're not, you're not talking correctly here or whatever, you know, you know, you're, you're saying, so you're talking on both sides of your mouth, whatever. But I think his bigger point then um, out of all of it is uh, that there is still opportunity. Even after that, there is still opportunity for people to make change, right? He says, Paul, the Pharisee had to be thrown to the ground and scales had to painfully fall from his eyes for him to recognize that in the name of his religion, he had become hate and even a mass murderer. The cock had to crow several times before the first Pope Peter could recognize that he was doing the very thing he said he would never do. Yet these are two figures that stand in front of the largest church in Christendom as the two pillars of the Roman church. 
They were not saints by later pious definitions. Instead, they were transformed examples of hatred and fear. This is not the rare exception, but the norm and the pattern. We all come from this. We all do this. And we all need to do the work of transformation. He says the greatest lovers are not uncommonly the the same people who once hated and feared. Virtue is not just willpower, but actually uh, vice overcome. And I think that mm. um, I think it's a beautiful way to put it because that really is the, again, that's the work we're called to do. Yeah, yeah. This is the last section of this chapter or the last two sections, I guess. But um, this Psalm 166 is where it starts. It's called Sacred Violence. And he's talking about um, some uh, psychologists, Jung and Gerard, and he says this is a pattern that they see in society and culture and individuals that the things we fear, deny, and avoid will, with 100% certainty, be projected somewhere else in our lives. So think about that. Everything you fear and you deny and you avoid will be projected somewhere else. And so furthermore, you do that with impunity and even grandiosity. I've never heard someone say grandiosity. It is often the sacralization of violence and the most common form of violence. That way we can be both hateful and not feel the least bit guilty about it, but in fact, feel morally superior. And I think this, this quote from Aquinas is really powerful. Aquinas says, no one does evil intentionally. They have to explain it to themselves as good. Sacred violence is the most common kind of violence. What he's getting at is what we're talking about. It's like even our worst thoughts about others that we have, we come up with ways to explain it. Even the worst things we do to people in the moment, we, we're not like thinking, I'm going to be evil. Even if it's an evil action, we justify it as thinking it is deserved. Like the days that I decide I'm going to be petty, like to someone in my life, because they're frustrating me so much, my justification is they deserve this pettiness in response that will teach them to not be you know annoying anymore and therefore my pettiness is actually a good thing to help them that's the way that we try to rebrand our own capacity for sin right we just we tell ourselves that the evils in our lives are actually good because we are made to be good we just need to come up with a way to make it uh, palatable for ourselves. But ultimately, just because we try to make those things, those thoughts, those <clears> ideas, <throat> or those actions sacred, it doesn't make it sacred, doesn't make it good. And so saying that sacred violence is the most common kind of violence is a way of shifting our, our gaze to say that, no, like the things that we do, um, whether it's a physical act of violence or like a mental or emotional one, we have to be sure that, that the things that we do are actually in honor of God and not against God. He says, uh, religion is ironically the safest place to hide from God. In its healthy forms, it's also the place to find God. Um, some Latin saying here, I'm not even going to try to pronounce, but it, it translates to the corruption of the best is the worst of all. And that's part of Aquinas's whole theology is that um, evil is a fallen good. Uh, C.S. Lewis picks up on this in a couple places in his writing, uh, Great Divorce being one of them. But the idea that like the higher a good is, the further it can fall. The more powerful a good thing in your life is, the deeper the evil it can be when it's corrupted. So you can take that in your sexual relationships or in your you know 
pursuit of success in a job in greed. Um, it, it, like there's all kinds of angles you can take with that, but the, the higher, the good, the further it can fall. And when it comes to us trying to justify evil in our own lives or evil perspectives of people groups in our lives, um, we can find all the ways in the world to justify it. And yet what we're doing is dehumanizing those people that are actually a part of God's very good creation, according to Genesis 1. And that's the antithesis of what forgiveness and love and community is about. And now we move into the last section, love, infectious and free. And uh, Roar gets into it a little bit here. Um, but I think that there's a distinction that that we kind of need to make. And that is when we're talking freedom in Christ, we're not talking freedom as we understand it. Um, specifically here in America, specifically as a right of people. And I think uh, I'm, we're not going to like dive into that here, but um if you want to go back and listen to the Scott Evans episode, he talks about this a little bit, like what is a Christian's role and how do they, how should they be thinking about their rights? And he talks about the story of Paul and Silas in prison and uh, by the very thing that God gave them to, to um, provide them freedom from those, that very real imprisonment, they decided to give up because of what they saw the jailer was about to do to himself in response to somebody else finding freedom. And so I just want to make that, that distinction. I don't know if that's even clear. That's semi-clear <laughs> that, uh, that when we're talking about these things, we're not talking about it. Like we just like signed the declaration of independence and won the revolutionary war freedom. We're not talking about that. We're talking about freedom to behave like Christ and freedom to participate in this process that is the kingdom of God and is the, the already kingdom of God that's here now because of what Jesus has taught us and because of the, the sacrifice that he provides for us, but also the not yet, which is the future. So that's just a little distinction I wanted to make. <clears throat> yeah, maybe uh, for this last section, we'll end with this quote and a thought or two about it, but um, he's talking about how we all fall short. We all have these problems. Again, that's it. left, right, center, up, down. All of us struggle with this. And he says, most Christians with utter irony worship Jesus, the scapegoat on Sundays, scapegoat being a historical view in Judaism of taking on the sins of another, right? Mm -hmm. We worship Jesus, the scapegoat on Sundays and the other six days of the week, we make scapegoat goats of Jews, Muslims, other Christian denominations, heretics, sinners, pagans, the poor, and almost anybody who was not like us. And the problem is that we have shifted our, our mindset towards scapegoating these other people to, to put all the blame about why society is falling apart. It's because of the corrupt, but we never think about ourselves as people that mm. are corruptible, right? Oh, it's the other political party. Oh, it's the other Christian denomination. It's the other world religion. Mm -hmm. As if we all, um, our denomination, our world religion hasn't had a part in these problems. And uh, on 169, he says one of the, the biggest surprises is that Jesus is shockingly not upset with sinners. This is a shock so total to most Christians to this day, they refuse to see it. 
in the Gospels, Jesus is only upset with people who do not think they are sinners. Mm -hmm. These denying, fearful, and illusory ones are the blockage. They are much more likely to hate and to feel no compunction. Formerly, religion thought its mission was to expel sin um, and evil. Through Jesus, we learn that the sin lies in the very act of expelling. There is no place to expel it to. We have met the enemy. The enemy is actually us. We either carry and transform the evil of human history as our own problem, or we increase its efficiency and power by hating and punishing it, quote unquote, over there. And I think it's just, again, a process of reorientation, of recapitulating ourselves to the reality that we all have work to do on ourselves, but on the society around us. And yes, there are evils around us that are causing us to, to stumble as people groups. And yet, if we only focus on the things that we hate, if we only focus on all the people in our lives that get it wrong, if we don't acknowledge that we also get it wrong, if we don't come at this with love rather than hate, rather than, you know, going to Jesus, cleansing the temple, you know, and flipping tables as the only justification for our quote unquote righteous anger. Do you know how many times people claim their anger is righteous anger, whether it's about politics or about taking church pews out or about changing which hymn is sung on Sunday or which place you go on your mission trip to? It's all righteous anger, whereas Jesus only apparently used that language once. It's like, mm. which even that, like, we're going to do a whole episode on that at some point. I don't know when, <laughs> but we're definitely talking about cleansing the temple. It's like, no, like we need to approach these things with love and grace and the title of this chapter, to recognize the power in forgiveness, mm. and in particular, forgiving those who, who have not asked for forgiveness. That, that's mm. significant, too. And not in a condescending way, but in a way that frees us to, to get busy doing the work that Christ is inviting us to join him in, rather than dwelling on the way that we can't do the work because of all those bad people out there holding it up. No, we're holding it up. Yeah, yeah. Um... I agree with you. <laughs> I'll just end with this quote. It's uh, kind of pulls it into the end of the chapter. It says, for Jesus, there, is no, there are no postures, group memberships, behaviors, prayer rituals, dietary rules, asceticism, uh, or social awareness that of themselves transform us or make us enlightened, saved, or superior. There are no contaminating elements or people to expel or exclude. These will be exposed as inadequate when goodness is exposed all the more. If that is not the moral message that shouts from Calvary, I cannot imagine what the message is. There is no redemptive violence. There is only redemptive suffering. Yes, hate is the norm, but hate is never the future. It is the old and dead story. Mm. love that language that um like you said earlier the first thing jesus comes to do is correct hate and to to point the finger at that rather than at the people who are hated and um i think we could just do a lot better job of that <laughs> today seriously myself included like yep you know exactly. I, the amount of time i'm sure i'm going to get off recording this episode mm -hmm. and make it about mm, maybe 45 minutes if i'm in a good place <laughs> before i justify my frustration hate anger towards some person in my life whether it's someone mm -hmm. i know or a stranger i encounter 
But the point of this transformation is us converting our own minds constantly through the power of the Holy Spirit to say, no, like, I need to continue working on this. I need to continue shifting my mindset, continue um, putting myself last and not Mm. first. Yes. And with that, we conclude chapters, I don't know what, eight and nine. Is that right? Eight and nine, baby. Cool. Yeah, eight and nine. We just concluded them. (laughs) But we've been really loving journeying with you all um, along the way. Thanks for everybody who sends in comments about episodes. Thanks for everybody who listens to these and shares them with their friends and things like that. It's it's really been an honor and a blessing to be a part of this. We got two episodes left this series or this season. And then we're going to start planning for the next one. So with that being said, if you are a fan of what you hear here, you can leave us a review and you can um, rate us on wherever you're listening to this. We would love it if you would do that. If you're interested in getting in touch with us to share a little bit of your story, we can be reached on Instagram at faith underscore restructured. Thanks for journeying with us. Grace and peace to you. Bye.